Welcome to Scream Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist, who was telling me that I was bipolar. I was released with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for about a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using music for therapy and as a way to escape. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. We often think of doctors being rigid or cold, or at least not the kind of people that would go to punk rock shows. Dr. Steven Daziger breaks that mold. He's a clinical psychologist that grew up in Long Island, New York, and was less than two hours away from one of the most infamous punk scenes ever, New York City in the late 1970s, CBGB's, Maxwell's, the Palladium. Steven is a master therapist in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, commonly known as EMDR. He developed the protocol used in trauma and addiction treatment across the U.S. What does fancy kinds of therapy have to do with punk? A lot. Steven agrees with most of my guests on Scream Therapy that punk rock saved his life. Without the scene, he wouldn't have been able to work through his own trauma during that time. When he came back to the music after going into recovery, he loved it even more. Steven is grateful to have grown up in New York when bands like Ramones, Television, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, and Patti Smith broke new ground for punk bands to come. The doc was right there in the front row with a smile on his face, soaking up as much scream therapy as he could. So hi, I'm Steve Danziger. I am a doctorate in clinical psychology and a marriage and family therapist licensed here in California. And I had a music career in the 70s, 80s, and then a bit in the 90s too, uh, where I originally played in bands in the late 70s that played at CBs and Maxes in the New York scene. I was in a couple of bands that made records back around that time. I started playing a lot with people in the spoken word scene, uh, like John S. Hall. I was in King Missile for the second and third albums of that band. I was in a band called Pianosaurus. We played rock and roll on toy instruments. As a drummer, everyone needed a drummer back then before they had machines that did that. So I was in a lot of bands with a lot of people. Uh, In the 90s, I actually let go of my music in 1989, actually as part of my own uh, going into recovery from addiction. And um, it's been 31 straight years since then. But I went back into music in the mid-90s. I was in a band with Maggie Estep, who was at the heart of the spoken word scene back then. But really, all that stopped for me, uh, music-wise, in the in the 90s. The way that the mental health professional career started was essentially through my own therapy. And then early in my recovery, I went to some career counseling for people with addiction and came out a high school English teacher. And the neighborhood I was teaching in had um, racial incidents in it. It was the Crown Heights riots in the early 90s. And I ended up in the middle of the healing process through a number of different events. 
And so I got my window into trauma and the trauma of systemic oppression and all the rest of that, and then became a trainer myself in those issues. And so I spent years in that arena. And eventually I just was thinking, what would it be like to work closer with people on these issues in their, you know, in their individual lives? And um, my therapist in New York had told me I should be a therapist for years. And finally, I relented once I moved to L.A. in 2002. So it's well known that trauma is the determining factor for mental illness. Mm. Can you just explain that a little bit? I, you know, I work specifically in EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And in that therapy, Francine Shapiro, who just passed away last year, who brought us the therapy, her statement of it was that the main problem that we have is the maladaptive processing of traumatic or adverse life event memories that needs to be brought to an adaptive resolution. And the EMDR APACE protocol does that. And there are other therapies that are doing the same thing. And essentially, the bottom line of it is that the material is stored in places like the body or the more primitive parts of the brain that are not built for long-term storage. And so that's where we end up getting all the different ways that we react and respond. And also the you know, something that happens now that triggers a little bit of what happened then reinforces what happened then and makes worse what's happening now. And it never comes to a resolution of essentially, yes, that happened, but it's not happening now. And it's not in that part of my brain that can make meaning from it, that can have insight into it, you know, any of those things. So that's essentially sort of a little skeleton view of how trauma impacts and brings on mental illness and mental difficulties, emotional difficulties. And it's the amygdala that sends off the alarm, correct? Yes. So the amygdala, the basal ganglia, uh, I'm not the world's foremost brain expert, but I can tell you this, the the amygdala is part of the uh, limbic brain and interacts with and works with the reptilian brain. And together, they are engaged in uh, survival. They're engaged in, like, the reptilian brain is essentially everything we share with the reptiles. It's very reactive to stimuli. It's designed to keep us safe, right? So then the limbic brain is the upgrade uh, amongst mammals that allows us to have feelings and attachment behaviors and those things that will make these basics of life, including survival, have more of a chance of happening. A lot of the folks that I talk to in the punk scene talk about using punk, the screaming, the loudness to process their trauma, uh, things that have happened in the past. What's your take on that? Oh, 100%. I basically, you know, CBGB saved my life. <laughs> when I was 12 uh, is when I became, I, I was taking drum lessons since I was like eight years old. And then when I was 12, I started trying to write songs and be in little bands and such. And then when I was about 14 is when I met my friend, uh, still today, Dog Bull, who uh, has his own solo career, but also is in King Missile. Um, and he, we went to the same high school and he basically formed a band and was doing originals. And I did that. And then I met some folks at this battle of bands we did. And we ended up on the Uncle Floyd show. And then all of a sudden we're at CBGB's. And this is all by the age of like 16. I remember being in my room, essentially, and buying the records that were coming out at that time. 
And that's what I did. I worked it out that way. And I worked it out. I feel very fortunate that drums was the thing that I chose. You know, my dad used to always joke, we wanted you to choose the piccolo. You know, <laughs> And I said, I want to play drums. And they didn't say no. But they, they got away with it for a while because they sent me to one of those music schools where they only let me hit a drum pad for like two years. And I stuck with it. But then once I had a kit, and once I started to understand that a loud sound would make me feel better, and then when I discovered all things punk rock, I, it saved my life. And I was also very, not just the screaming and the, the drumming, but I'm very lyric-focused, you know? And so messages that made sense to me, you know, social justice messages and things like that made me feel like the trauma that I felt based on the world being uh, an apparently fucked up place a lot of bands gave me words for that. So, Well, I find it really curious and cool that you would say punk rock saved my life because I talked to so many folks on the podcast and in my scene that say exactly the same thing. So that's the one common thread that I'm finding in the podcast. It's really encouraging. It's a thing. It's a thing. And I feel there were a lot of different scenes, you know, like local scenes and time periods. And the fact that I basically came of age in 1977 in New York City, I can't say enough about how fortunate I feel that I got to just sort of swim around in that arena in the late 70s and then the early 80s, too. When it got to the mid 80s, I was the last band standing in my life really was Pianosaurus, you know, which had a punk rock ethos, the fact that we were playing on toys, you know, sort of like this way quiet, minimalist way of punk. You know, we used to smash the instruments pretty much every night because we could, because they were like 20 bucks for a drum kit. So I was in embedded in this community. That's the other thing is like a huge part of trauma recovery and trauma resilience comes from community. And those were beautiful communities that I ran in. You know, I'm 57 years old, some of my strongest friendships are from that time, you know, and from that scene. And um, I remember when I went into addiction recovery at the end of the 80s, um, where did I end up? I ended up in a bunch of meetings where I was like, uh, you know, 12-step meetings where I would see these folks where, you know, you're like, oh, this is where they were. <laughs> and then other people would come into the meeting like two, three, four years later and go, oh, this is where you were, Steve. So there was a sober, then there was the, call it, post-using straight-edge <laughs> scene of musicians that I hung out with because we were all still in the same neighborhood that we were on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. For me, I've been into punk since I was really young, part of the punk scene, doing whether it's show promoting or being in bands. And I just keep coming back to it. I'm almost 50 now. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been dealing with things my whole life as far as mental health, but undiagnosed and kind of unaware. And think, well, that was the real steady in my life. It was my safe haven. Yes. And I wonder if that's a commonality with a lot of folks with mental health issues that are attracted to the loud music and the uh, culture of punk. Music in general, right? M music being a cliche, it's a universal language, but also just the energy of it, you know, depending on one's taste or what it is that has an effect on them. I still come back to my punk records I still enjoy getting to a club. Of, uh, I'll put in some pretty serious earplugs at this point <laughs> because my fellow professional drummer friends who, who 
stayed professional much longer than me, you know, they're in their 50s and 60s and full on practically deaf. So I'm trying to take care of that. But yeah, there's there's something about the overall intensity of what that scene and what that music brings. You know, going back to the community thing, you know, more than just about any other scene that I can think of musically, it's very communal. People supporting each other. It's almost like a recovery scene, you know, where people with, you know, similar interests or similar problems are supporting each other because they they know what other people don't know. You know, you're actually making me think too, you know, I had a period where I was playing in a band called Artless that was pretty much a, a hardcore band and we were touring through Europe and I remember that the European scene, all you had to do is be from the States. You are now going to be treated like punk rock stars. And there was something about just the pure joy that came in my direction and that then I just sort of put right back to people. And, you know, I always lamented that as a drummer, you're, you're sort of, uh, it's suggested that you don't stage dive because the bottom drops out of the music. But it got to the point where it was just so, so communal and, and the energy and the fact that I felt like these are my people and, and I'm their people. And I would just jump out from behind the drum kit and, and, and it would be on. I remember they didn't catch me in Copenhagen. That was bad. But um, I do remember there was a, a show in northern Germany where they literally like just started throwing me up in the air and and basically took me right out of the concert hall and they kind of finished the song without me. But anyway, point being that physicality of it, which is an important part of trauma recovery, is that the body heals as well. I just want to dig in a little bit more on punk rock and how folks that feel alienation are drawn to punk rock. Of course, the scene has lots of weirdos and outcasts, and I mean that in a good way, right? Um, sure. So what do you think it is about the scene other than what you've already explained, the intrigue of it or the volume? Or I believe it varies from person to person, but I think that those elements that you just mentioned, the sound, the loudness, the impact. I remember when I would go to shows, I would try to put myself as close to the giant speaker columns as possible because I wanted not to make my ears bleed, but I wanted my whole body to vibrate. And I know that's you know possible with obviously with some other forms of music, but the pace and the physicality and the vibration and the community, you know, for some the the rage and the anger and the unfortunately the violence, right? It's the full package. There's everything there for someone who feels outside to express themselves. I can only really speak to my experience fully. You know, my experience was is that the bands that I was in and the friends that I had, they all spoke for me and they all vouched for me and they all gave me a place to be fully embodied. It's a healing mechanism, sound and music and fury and community and physicality, all of it. Is it a defense mechanism as well? Yeah, exactly. That's where it's person to person, right? And it's a defense mechanism, but the verbiage that we tend to use in the trauma community 
Gabor Mate and others would call it an adaptive move. We're faced with these traumas, we're faced with being an outcast, or we're faced with whatever dilemmas or traumas have brought us to maladaptive processing. And then it's like we find what we need to survive. And for some, it's punk rock, for some, it's alcohol and drugs, for some, it's dissociation, for some, it's it could be reading. <laughs> It can go any direction. A lot of the punks that I talk to, especially the ones that are up on stage, usually the singers, describe this switching off and going to another place while they're performing. What's yes. your take on that? I was telling you, I was in a, I'm in a band with my wife, and she's the singer. And literally, as soon as the music starts, her eyes kind of roll back in her head. I'm like, bye, <laughs> see ya. And again, so bringing up this word dissociation, which, you know, some people, they hear that and they're thinking, you know, multiple personality, these things, but really it's on a continuum and all of us have different parts to us and different ways of dissociating. Like even, let's say, doing a guided visualization is like a positive way of dissociating. It's just really just means not being in the moment in a certain way. When I hear people talk about that effect, it can be one of two things. One is that the music and or the performing helps them to get out of themselves, like really out of themselves to the point where they're like another part of themselves, or you might call it another person or whatever, or persona. And for some, it's more like they're just in a really, really cool flow state. They're in mindfulness. There's nothing else going on. The same way that people through meditation practices get to a place of single pointed concentration and they're able to, you know, like notice, oh, my thoughts are taking me away. I'm now going to come back to my object of meditation. That's how a lot of musicians and artists and, you know, just people who create and then people who listen to music or dance to music or, you know, are not performers necessarily. That is their object of meditation. That is the way that they get into a state of flow that is their, whatever you want to call it, their best self, higher self, creative self, their resilient self. The music makes them feel grounded, resilient, and able to live in this world. You know, I totally look at punk rock as the first therapy I was in, because I didn't get into therapy until I was 18 or 19. So my first therapy was going to see The Clash at the Palladium. I was actually at the show where that picture of Paul Simonon smashing his bass was taken. I remember when I made sort of a conscious decision to just play London Calling start to finish one day as sort of just an ad hoc enjoyable experience slash therapeutic experience and it moved me i had all sorts of there were memories that came up but mostly it was just about how much i love that album and so the difference is in perhaps whether you or i could write a research paper on the results of my listening to london calling or not you know we go could, for it <laughs> yeah exactly you know we could we could we could you know get the brain scan going and you know, we could come up with some, you know, maybe some qualitative, if not quantitative evidence uh, as to its therapeutic value. But just go to any concert, right? Just check out any person with their headphones on, with their eyes closed, or check out 
you know, anything where uh, music is the is the driver. So I have a very broad definition of therapeutic. I mean, it seems like chaos and, and fury out there when you go to a punk show, but I kind of see it as a controlled environment in the sense that, you know, you fall down in the mosh pit, you get picked back up. Given that it's a controlled environment, is that a good place for folks to process trauma? It's a really good question. The way that I can frame it from a professional perspective is when someone comes to me for help, I'm trying to determine what level of care they need, right? Does this person need the hospital or do they need a residential rehab? Do they need partial hospitalization, which here in the States, partial hospitalization means like a, a, it's like an outpatient program, but it's all day long, like nine to five kind of thing. Or whether it's intensive outpatient, like, you know, some groups during the week, or whether it's just seeing me once a week, or whether you don't need a therapist, you know, you can just go to the punk rock show and work it out, right? So the way that I look at it as I look at punk rock as being one of the many possible resources, internal, external resources that a person might have. And some people can work it out and have it release and stay that way, right? In other words, they can have a positive result that's sustainable, that their trauma is worked through. Um, other folks would, let, let's say, you know, it's a great place to work some stuff out, but then it comes back again, right? So where do you go for that? Where you go for that is either, you know, mutual health groups or therapy or treatment. So yes, it can be a place where you can work out trauma. But one of the problems is though that, and this comes with like when we're doing treatment, is a lot of different people with a lot of different kinds of different traumas and a lot of different kinds of triggers. So that's the, call it X factor, possible less safe aspect of that for some people where it could be anything. It could be gender specific in terms of making physical contact that it's like, I don't want that physical contact. It could be not gender specific. It could be just some people want to be in the mosh pit and some people might get pulled into the mosh pit that don't want to be there and they might get they fall down and they don't get immediately picked up and they get traumatized in a sense right so so the answer is yes and no and it's kind of knowing one's own resilience as to how much of quote-unquote the work can be done at the show right well in a way it's a microcosm of the outside world or the greater yes. world. And I think mm -hmm. that it is a more controlled environment and a place where people can be themselves. Yes. Uh, I totally agree. And then it, it becomes about helping people to become more aware of their own level of trauma resilience and their needs. It's sort of a really heady discussion about whether or not to go to the punk rock show, but, but really, you know, understanding that it may be a place where I can work out my trauma, and it may not. And if it may not be, it doesn't mean that it's a bad place or a place where I, you know, I can no longer go or that doesn't serve a purpose. But the trauma may not get worked through there. For some people, yes. Yeah. What is it about the folks like you and me who have that experience? Is it just where we feel comfortable? Or is it sometimes I wonder, and I've heard this before too from other folks, is did I choose punk rock or did punk rock choose me? For me, it was a combination. In mindfulness practice, we talk about 
we don't quiet the mind. We find the quiet that's already there by doing the practice. And so I didn't know punk rock was there until Dog Bowl said, come over to my house. I need to play some stuff. And played it for me and, and then said almost immediately, like, let's form a band. You play drums. I've got the guitar. Let's do it. And you could have easily have just said, forget it. It's not my thing. Oh, yeah. Probably would have kept asking people and asking people until you found that person that was the right fit. Oh, um, exactly. I mean, there's so many stories like that. It's totally a situation where it could have been anybody and it had to be that right person. Oh, yeah. I'm so grateful to him all these years later because we were, we were it. This was 1977, 78 in uh, Long Island, the suburbs of New York. It had not hit there yet. Like when we did this Battle of the Bands, we, we were the only band that played original material. We were certainly the only punk band. Two of the bands played Freebird, and the place went nuts the same amount each time. <laughs> and we were last, and it was in, in a cafeteria, and so we surrounded ourselves we made like a little moat out of some garbage cans that had some garbage in them and put up some posters for the band on them and so people were like what is this we don't know what it is but we think we're going to like it for some reason and we started playing and someone knocked over one of the garbage cans and all of a sudden we're just in a hail of garbage after the second song they stopped the show they said that's it no more they pulled the plug and me and Dog Bowl knew, like we, we knew our Sex Pistols history at that point, and we knew that their first show, they were thrown off the stage in a hail of garbage after two songs. <laughs> and so we were like, yes. And me and Dog Bowl were like, we're going to do this for the rest of our lives. <laughs> what was the band called? We called ourselves The Flies that night. I remember a couple of things, like uh, when I went to see public image show at the Ritz where they wouldn't come from behind a screen and they left the stage in a hail of garbage <laughs> after yeah. about after making us wait for like three hours for them to come out and they played for about five minutes and it's John Lydon again right instead of Johnny Rotten but anyway I just remember considering that one of the best shows I'd ever been <laughs> you know like there was something <laughs> about it that was just wow just everything about it, they're making us wait and then us throwing them off and then the screen getting torn down. And and the fact that most of us in the audience, even though we were kind of pissed, were laughing at the end. And for me, not for nothing, um, laughter is actually one of the best aspects of it. You know, you know, a lot of punk rock was funny, funny AF. And a lot of the energy and the relationships that I had with people were about helping each other to laugh at tragedy sometimes and sometimes people call that a defense mechanism i i call that a resiliency tool do you remember seeing a punk band and just thinking to yourself that's it this is why i'm here oh my god well i i had several of those experiences especially early on that class show was just kind of my mouth just stayed dropped open and i just similar to the experience i had with dog bowl where we were like having that experience of being the target of the garbage and we're going to like do this for the rest of our lives. At that point, I totally loved the clash. It was the, the second album had just come out. And so I'd been listening to the first record just over and over and over and over and over again. And so to hear them live and Joe Strummer was just so off the hook. I was like, Oh my gosh. And then pretty much since the Ramones were the same every single time, <laughs> That had a huge effect on me, this strange and beautiful wall of sound 
that would come at me. Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, I saw them a whole bunch of times. And that was like addiction and mental illness on display. And this music that was just so powerful and moving and, to my mind, beautiful, even though it was like weird and sloppy and, you know, awesome. Has punk been therapeutic for you and has it helped you with your trauma? It's mostly hindsight. I would say absolutely. I stand by my punk saved my life. How did it save my life? By helping me to work through my trauma to the extent I was able to work through it during those days. Uh, and then when I went into recovery and still, you know, I took a break from the scene and then went back into it as a recovering person. Uh, and I realized that I loved the music even more. Then it became part of my post-traumatic growth resiliency program afterwards. Like I could really just be in joy in the music. So yes, 100%. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Scream Therapy. You can connect with me at soundcloud.com slash screamtherapy. I was also a guest on the Out to Be podcast, hosted by music and wellness coach Katie Zicardi. I talked about living with bipolar disorder and the importance of having a strong support system. So listen to me on Out to Be, wherever you find your podcasts, or at katiezicardi.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care and be well. I need this thing if you don't